You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, Senior Critic at Large for The Washington Post. And today we're continuing our series on race in America. And my guest is the author and poet Elizabeth Alexander. She is also currently the president of the Mellon Foundation, which has an endowment of over $9 billion. I'd also like to remind our audience that we would love for you to join the conversation. So please tweet your questions and comments to the handle post live. And now it's my great pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Alexander. Hello, Robin. I'm so glad to be with you. Well, it's great to have you back here. Um, I, I wanted to start in right away with um, the focus of your book because, you know, the death of Trayvon Martin has been uh, now 10 years, but sadly there have been other searing deaths since then. I I'm wondering why you focused on Trayvon and why you uh, called it the Trayvon generation. Well, I think that what we know, sadly, is that race-based violence against Black people in particular is a, a uh, tradition that is as old as the country itself. I think that if we look back to, let's say, the 1950s and the death of Emmett Till, when he was killed in Money, Mississippi, that was something that happened regularly. But what made the story different, why we remember Emmett Till, is that his mother brought his body to Chicago, kept the casket open, had people come through the church. And then the photograph of this killed child was in Jet Magazine. So the world knew who Emmett Till was. And some called him the sacrificial lamb of the civil rights movement. Some thought of that as an inaugural moment in the civil rights movement. So with Trayvon Martin, uh, tragically, there are black and brown children on either side of him on the timeline, murdered by George Zimmerman in 2012, hunted is really the only way to put it, coming from the, the store buying candy. Um, and then a year later, when George Zimmerman was acquitted uh, uh, of murder, um, I think that we saw a galvanizing moment. We saw Black Lives Matter formed after that. We saw an enough is enough moment. Sadly, we are still dealing with all of these murders, all of this violence and vulnerability and racism as an unsolved American problem. So I think when I talk about the Trayvon generation, I talk about the young people who were you know, coming of age in the last 10 years, even a little bit before that, with a steady diet of seeing this violence recorded on their phones. And I wanted to think about what they are dealing with, their trauma, their vulnerability, and also to think about what it means to love them and encourage them and listen to their culture and offer them something that moves them towards freedom. And throughout the book, um, there's incredible artwork, um, but in particular, there's um, some photography of uh, Dawood Bay. Um, Martina and Rhonda, um, this particular mm -hmm. one is called. And I'm curious, why was it important for you to, um, to actually show members of the Trayvon generation? 
Well, I think, and you know, to describe the way that art works in the book as a whole, um, I wanted it to be a very particular reading experience so that as you were reading the words, you were also absorbing this brilliant, brilliant art that it wasn't necessarily literal and illustrative. It was contrapuntal in conversation that you could look just at the, at the artwork, that you could come back to it and look at it with the words. So I wanted it to be um, a very special kind of reading experience. Martina and Rhonda, these young people who in large format, that, that, that photograph by Dawood Bey is in very large format. And he did um, a series of young people in Chicago. They're very intimate pictures. I think that that breaking of the frame shows us the complexity uh, within our young people. Um, you know, we need to listen to them to understand all of those pieces, if you will, that we see in that photograph. I think that also the resilience that's in that photograph is that even though the images are fractured, they nonetheless form a coherent whole. And I think also what's important about the, the two young people in the picture is that they are together a community, together a generation in intimate space moving forward. I mean, that's such a, um, I, I think, an important word to describe so much of the book, intimate. I mean, there's really mm -hmm. um, a, a, such a conversation and such, um, and it's quite revelatory about your own thoughts and concerns about your, your sons. And one of the things that you write is that every Black mother I know is exhausted in her own way. I mean, how did being a mother... Um, Sort of drive some of the narrative in the book? Well, my sons are now 22 and 23, uh, and uh, there are many pieces of me, but uh, being their mother uh, is the one thing I have to be forever, right? Um, and um, so I think that, that I would add to being a mother of these extraordinary young people uh, that I was a college professor for over three decades. So the generation of young people, you know, kind of, you know, late teens to early 20s, that's my specialty. Uh, those are the kids that I've, I've, I've loved and known and listened to and taught and shared culture with and gotten them through crises and listened to their concerns um, for a very, very, very long time. Um, every Black mother I know is exhausted. I wrote that and it feels like the resonant truth. In the image in the book by Elizabeth Catlett called The Torture of Mothers, where you see uh, uh, the, the head of a Black woman and in a bubble inside of it is a, uh, a, a, a young Black man who in a pool of blood. Uh, and so that sense that we there's never a corner of our brain, to be literal about the image, mm -hmm. that isn't preoccupied. Um, because when you see, and you know, not that it, it, it matters uh, that these children are beautiful, but when you see the face of a Trayvon Martin, you see the face of a Tamir Rice. Let's just go through the names of these children. You know, Tamir Rice playing outside a gazebo in a public park, 12 years old. You know, someone saw that as a predator, someone's eyes cast. Uh, that stereotype and dehumanization onto him. And my mother's eyes, I can't see that. 
Uh, and I want everyone to look at our children as though all of our children belong to all of us. I mean, in, in talking about this generation, you, um, you know, underscore the fact that uh, the violence um, has been uh, in many ways very close to them because they have been able to witness it, you know, through digitally, through their cell phones, through um, Sally, live streams even. I mean, the past generations also lived with violence, but I mean, how do you see the, the proximity, that, um, that up close, that cell phone relationship um, having an impact and sort of changing uh, the way that, you, that they've experienced violence? Well, I think that if you look at technologies over time, to go back to Emmett Till and Jet Magazine, you know, Jet Magazine in 1955 was the most effective technology for Black people that there was, right? I mean, you know, Jet, Jet Magazine was in so many homes, and that was a way that we could get the news. If you looked at Jet Magazine, you would be in intimate space. You would be in your home. Maybe you'd be in the barbershop or the beauty shop. You'd be in a place where you could talk with other Black people about what it is you were seeing. You could process it together. Then let's move forward to another uh, emblematic moment, uh, the uh, videotape, George Holiday's videotape of the police beating of Rodney King in the early 1990s. I think what's different about that is that, you know, we weren't even able to record things on our cell phones at that time. So it was very unusual that we had videotaped evidence of that. And Rodney King was not a child. It was horrifying. I mean, you know, I, I gasp whenever I, I've written about that video, you know, that as well, and that moment mm -hmm. of traumatization in our culture as well. But I think that repetition does something different. I think that your cell phone that you can look at when you're on the school bus before you get home, that you can look at when you're under the covers in your bed, uh, that you see not once, not twice, but infinite numbers of time, that is literally, uh, you know, touching your body when you watch it. I, I, I think that the, that's actually quite important. Um, and so if, if you think, you know, about the scenes that we might turn from in movies, right? You know, when something terrible is happening and it's, it's hard to watch it. Imagine being formative and seeing something like this over and over again. Imagine, as I write about in the book, Darnella Frazier. 17 years old, videotaping these four police officers in the act of murder and aiding and abetting the murder of George Floyd. Those long minutes we know about because a 17-year-old girl went on a routine run to the corner store with her little cousin and came upon this and somehow had the presence of mind and the courage, unimaginable courage, I think, actually, to to tape it, but she then the next day and subsequent to that used the word traumatized. You know, you know bringing her up just sort of reminds me that, um, you know, much of the book does um, sort of focus on young Black sons. And I'm wondering if you see uh, a, a, di a difference between the way in which young Black boys, young Black men, absorb that kind of violence and the way that it might impact young girls? 
Well, I mean, we have to think about all of our children and of course also um, our girls and black women are not immune to uh, violence. You know, so I, I talk about, you know, the, the, the terrible um, uh, 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 film that we saw of the black girl in the colorful bikini. I think she was 13 years old um, at a pool party uh, that the police broke up and that a policeman kneeled on her on her back. She feared for her life. It's terrifying to watch that. So I do talk about instances uh, where where girls are are violated as well. Um, yeah. I think that you know we have to also think about all of the different stereotypes and their particularity um, that still apply. I mean, you know, I, I take us back to. Uh, the fact that we were brought to this country as property, we were brought here to build and work and work to death and reproduce more property for the purpose of building the wealth of others. I mean, that's not hyperbole. That's the simple fact. Right. We were legally classified as three-fifths human beings. I think in order to do violence to people, you have to dehumanize them first. And, uh, you know, there is a, just a very, very, very long history of, um, you know, dehumanizing black people that I would argue with our culture. I mean, that's where uh, I have hope that culture and history and critical thinking and art are a way that we can be seen in our full humanity. But it's profound to me when I think back of, you know, the famous image in the 19th century of the slave pleading for his humanity, making the case for his humanity, that uh, in a different moment, uh, that is still something that hasn't been all the way resolved. So I, I was going to ask you about this a little bit later, but um, in bringing up the the, the question of humanity, it uh, reminds me of the essay that you wrote in the part of the book that deals with this question that was posed to, I believe it was W.B. Du Bois, du Bois. About, mm -hmm. uh, about do Black people cry? Do they shed tears? And your assessment of that question was really that the person was asking, are Black people human? Can you talk a little bit about that that essay? I mean, it's incredibly yes. moving and distressing. Yes. Well, um, in the in the early part of uh, of the 1900s, 1905, a researcher named Alvin Borquist wrote to W. E. B. Du Bois at the time, a PhD, a professor at Atlanta University, someone known for doing his research on black people, and wrote very very seriously, asking the question, does the Negro shed tears and very clinically wanted to know if they do, for what reason, in what circumstances. But he didn't believe that Black people could cry. And, you know, Du Bois answers back. I mean, you know, first he very dryly says, the Negro sheds tears and then went on from there. Uh, but I move in the chapter. Uh, to images of black men in particular, and 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 back to a thread of of, of your great question about black girls and about gender. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you know, as we think about black men and black boys in particular, and the way in which the space of expressivity 
is sometimes something that is tamped down in our boys uh, when they're told to be a man and to you know uh, you know uh, hold, keep your you know chin up uh, uh, and you know, be be the man of the house, little man. You know, uh, you know boys don't cry. All of this kind of stuff. Um, we have a lot to cry about. Those feelings, those emotions, and, and I talk about all the people on the stand, the black men at Derek Chauvin's trial, the police officer who murdered George Floyd, the neighborhood elder, uh, uh, Philonese Williams, weeping, George Floyd's brother, weeping, George Floyd himself, weeping as his life was taken from him. Uh, it goes without saying, but the point is the waters of our bodies, the involuntary reaction of crying or laughing, this is what human beings do. When we come onto this earth, how do we know everything is okay? We wait for the human baby to cry. So um, I, I thought that that was something worth, worth bringing forward. Yeah, and just in talking about the, the gender issue as well, I mean, it, it continues on with the, um, the trope of the, the strong black woman. And yes her invulnerability and her strength in the in the face of oppression. Well, and you know, to that, you mentioned that. And so of course I have to say um, right now to um, invoke um, the extraordinary Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And, uh, you know, just saying all my, you know, positive things right now, but, um, <laughs> What I thought was so extraordinary, I mean, you know, she was treated with, with such profound disrespect, uh, uh, you know, rhetorical violence, uh, you know, gender-based racism. I mean, it was really quite a display. Um, but what I thought was so powerful is that the strong black woman, like, right, we're not supposed to cry at work, right? <laughs> um, and I was so moved and so glad that a tear fell when, when Senator Cory Booker lifted her up, shined a light on her accomplishments, asked the questions that were appropriate uh, in this moment, uh, and uh, talked about how no one would steal the pride and the joy of this moment. That brought a tear to her eyes. Um, and I was so happy to see that tear because uh, I think that, you know, perhaps a final frontier of our freedom. Uh, is, uh, you know, can we be fully expressive human beings, uh, you know, wherever we may be and not have that uh, evoke all other people's stereotypes? Um, one of the questions that we actually have from, that came in early, uh, let's see, oh, did I lose it? Ah, there we are. It's from Carl Rudd in Maryland. And he was asking, how have social media and cell phone cameras affected the engagement of young people in racial and social justice initiatives? Um, just to, well, to add to that, I wonder, have there been positive aspects to, the, to social media and to all of those cameras in mobilizing people and, um, and, and how so? 
For sure. I'm so glad for that question because I, I didn't mean to suggest that all of these repeated images mean cell phones are bad. It just means that that's where we are with the technology and that's you know how it's, it's used. Um, I think that the connectivity of, of social media um, is a wonderful thing. I think that the accessibility of cell phones, I mean, you know, everybody's got one uh, in the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic and the attendant lockdowns, the way that, you know, and particularly after the murder of George Floyd with people in um, isolation, they were able to mobilize and go into the streets and raise their voices in protest. Uh, and that was because they were able to stay, you know, connected in that in that particular way. Uh, I know that 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 others have talked about uh, Black Lives Matter and its moment, its uh, you know the the movements of the time um, as being very much um, uh, effective and speedy uh, because of uh, how we've been able to communicate with each other. So I think that that is um, is very very important and positive. And as in the past, I mean, uh, music, art have been uh, instrumental in communicating um, concerns, issues, raising awareness. Um, I want to take uh, the chance, the opportunity to show a little bit more of the, the incredible art that um, great in the book. Um, I mean, it ranges from uh, Amy Sherald uh, mm -hmm. to uh, Carrie James Marshall, uh, as well as uh, I think we also have Jordan Castile. I mean, a really yes. uh, a wide range across generations. What is it about art, poetry, um, and it's a, their ability to communicate in a way that um, pure journalism doesn't? Well, I mean, I think you know, artists are our seers and our seers. Right. I mean, you know, what we ask of our artists, of our poets, is that they go down into the darkness and bring back something human uh, with uh, artists, writers, poets, the way that they practice their craft. Uh, the fact that um, the brilliant ones are rare uh, means that they with that thing that they bring out to be able to give it to us in a way that is as powerful as the art that you saw just now. Um, I do believe, I've said this before, but um, I think that um, imagination is truly a superpower. I think that the ability to make human connection, to be able to understand the life of another, to be able to enter the world of another, to travel outside of ourselves with art and with poetry, to have understanding crystallized, especially in the word, um, that's what we need from our artists and our poets. And I wanted to give that in abundance in this book. Um, with those pictures that you just showed, um, and it, it makes me so happy to see them up there. Um, again, they're not directly illustrative of the book, uh, but they themselves raise interesting questions. In the Amy Sherald, uh, here is a black cowboy. So already mm -hmm. we're you know, kind of challenged by a, a stereotype that is uh, it turned on itself. Here is a black man wearing the American flag. So, you know, in this country where, you know, sometimes our relationship to it can be ambivalent, you know, we can critique it and love it at the same time. Though, you know, that's, that's the gift of blackness, I think, is, is that kind of critical thinking. To the Carrie James Marshall, seeing the quotidian ways in our home spaces 
that we remember, even if we're not remembered in monuments and official spaces. So, you know, that goes along with a conversation about driving in New Haven, Connecticut, and seeing how a community is uh, wearing golden hoodies with the face of a young boy who was killed. They're remembering him on their bodies. Uh, and that is, is how we do. To look at the beautiful, beautiful uh, Jordan Castile, Galen, that green mysterious figure. Human beings are not green, uh, but <laughs> does this raise interesting questions about race, about skin color, about the mysteries of who we are? You know, does that person just feel like that's who he is that day? And to be able to look at the beauty of a black male nude without stereotype, simply to look at that beauty, I think is something that that, that painting um, allows us to do. I mean, so much of, uh, you know, what you described really gets at um, understanding um, the, the nuances of our history to better understand who we are and where we are today. And yet that is, uh, it's something that is quite controversial now. It's under assault to some degree. Uh, this idea of wanting to protect young people from difficult ideas. I mean, as an educator, as an artist, I mean, how do you see uh, the capacity for young people to grapple with these sort of, with these tough and complex ideas? Well, thank you for that question because I have proof. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> decades of, of teaching um, mixed college classrooms, mixed race, mixed gender, mixed class, mixed sexuality, mixed experience, mixed places of the world, coming together to studying, study African-American culture because that's, that's what I've taught. I see people come in the door one way and leave another. I see people angry about what they have been denied in their learning. I see people exhilarated by what they are given in the culture. I see people grappling with each other with the question of race. And, and you know, one of the things I think having a difficult race, racial conversation, like you won't die from it. <laughs> um, and, you know, to see people work their way through um, uh, over and over, semester after semester after semester, for over 30 years. Yes, it's hard sometimes, but I know we can do it. Well, we have only a couple minutes and I would love to ask you if um, you can tell us of any particular writers or poets who, who inspire you. Uh, I think we have a sense of some of the artists, who is visual artists who inspire you, um, but um, who should we be reading now? Oh, well, I think um, I'll, I'll point you to some of the folks who I, I, I lift up in the book because they are very important to me. Um, always the poet Gwendolyn Brooks, um, her pithiness of language and uh, I think the way in which she's the one who reminds us with the poem, The Boy Died in My Alley, that all of our children belong to all of us. Lucille Clifton, our greatest, deepest poet, uh, philosopher, I think, who in the poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me, says every day something, won't you celebrate with me, that every day something has tried to kill me and failed. You know, that sense of it is, we can celebrate even as we are under siege, that 
our young people, um, you know, even as we think about vulnerability and trauma, they are mighty. They are dancing. They are thinking. They are in the street. They are in the classroom. They are working. They are going to show us the way. They are surviving. We are surviving. So I see that in Lucille Clifton. Natasha Trethewey, um, whose extraordinary uh, poem about growing up uh, in Mississippi and being taught as a child, Gone with the Wind was her history textbook. So the way in which Trethewey gets at the mythologies of who we are as a country and helps us take them apart. Um, and then finally, another poet who I love, a young poet named Clint Smith. Uh, who is also a prose writer, um, also a scholar. Um, and uh, he has a poem where he talks about being with his precious young son in the store and having someone say, oh, he's so adorable and thinking about what the future is like for that child. So those are, I, I urge you all to hasten to buy books by these poets. Well, Elizabeth Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.